You are listening to the Mother Lab Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Mother Lab Podcast. Mother Lab stands for Maternal Outcomes for Translational Health Equity Research. The Mother Lab is run by Dr. Muta Onokaga, founder and director of the Mother Lab housed at Tufts University School of Me- Medicine. Dr. Ao is the Julia A. Okora Professor of Black Maternal Health and Assistant Dis- Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Tufts University School of Medicine. Dr. Ao is also a member of the Racial Inequities and Maternal Health Commission. My name is Amaya, and I am the co-chair of the Community Engagement, Advocacy, and Policy Committee here at the Mother Lab. Thank you, Maya. Hi, I'm Lena, and I'm a member of the Community Engagement, Advocacy, and Policy Committee. Today, we are joined by Chloe Schwartz. Chloe Schwartz is the Massachusetts Director of Maternal and Infant Health Initiatives for March of Dimes. A lifelong Massachusetts resident, Chloe has a bachelor's in psychology from Boston University and a master's in public health from Tufts University School of Medicine. Prior to graduate school, Chloe worked in public relations at two Boston-based creative agencies. While attaining her MPH, Chloe designed and conducted a research project under the direction of the Center for Reproductive Rights, U.S. Maternal Health and Rights Initiative, to deliver a strategy as to how birthing hospitals in New York City could better communicate patients' rights before and during childbirth. Chloe currently serves on the steering committee for the Massachusetts Mind the Gap Coalition and the Worcester Healthy Baby Collaborative, and is an advisory board member for the Perinatal Neonatal Quality Improvement Network of Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Center for Birth Defects Research and Prevention, and the Massachusetts Pregnancy Risk Assessment Monitoring System. So thank you so much for joining us, Chloe. We're super excited to have you here. And so we kind of start off all our podcasts by talking about this, but we want to hear a little bit about what drew you to the field of maternal and child health. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I feel like I have been screaming from the rooftops about reproductive health since high school. Um, I can remember sitting in the cafeteria and my friends getting super frustrated with me because I wanted to talk about this stuff all the time. Um, I didn't pursue it as a career initially. I thought it would be too difficult to deal with all of this stuff and take it home every day. And and I'm not very good at compartmentalizing, but um, it turns out that pursuing a career that isn't part of your passion um, isn't very enjoyable. (laughs) So I uh, made the decision about two and a half years out of college to go back to graduate school, do what I cared about. I knew right away that I was gonna do something in maternal or reproductive health. Um, And from the day I started, I made sure that every project um, an assignment and opportunity I had had to do with maternal or reproductive health. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, when you say that you've been thinking about reproductive health since high school, what do you think really sparked that interest? I wish I knew. I I just, it, it's always been ingrained in me. It's a part of me. It's something that gets my blood flowing. It gets me out of bed in the morning. I, I find such empowerment and frustration equally when talking about women's health, when talking about maternal health. Um, it's it's misunderstood. And at the same time, it's a beautiful thing. And I think that complexity and that nuance of pregnancy and childbirth and postpartum is what really draws me to it every single day. You know, the people who do this work are the best kinds of people. They are the people who care. They are the people who want to change the world. Um, 
and just getting to be a part of that community has been the most rewarding part of of entering this field. Yeah, totally. And one of the things that you talked about, kind of talking about how it was hard for you to compartmentalize and, you know, we deal with such um, hard things every day and to have a passion for it, but also have to take that home with you at the end of the day. Have you learned anything about how to kind of navigate that or what has worked for you? Yeah, you know, I think everyone has their own, you know, coping mechanisms for for dealing with this kind of career. Um, I, I, you know, myself, I find ways to switch off. I like to cook. I like to do yoga, you know, things like that. Um, I am really close with my family. And I think that helps a lot too. my, my mom or my sister's will drop everything and listen to my phone calls when I call after a bad day at work. You know, if there was something that happened locally that was really sad, which unfortunately has happened a couple of times this year, you know, they'll listen to me. And that support network is really, really helpful um, and really goes into a lot of what I promote in the work in terms of like, you know, it takes a village to to raise someone and I'm finding, you know, even as an adult, I still need my village. <laughs> and I probably will need them for the rest of my life. Um and so that's a message that I try to promote everywhere as well. <laughs> Every age which <laughs> we all need that phone call to our mom or a dad or anyone that we care about, right? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um I also wanted to ask so you were talking about uh, finding like a community of people who are, have like similar interests as you um, and I was wondering if you have like a mentor or anyone that like helped guide you in the right direction or if you have any advice on like finding mentors or mentorship yeah you know I don't I don't have someone I would consider you know my my mentor through this whole process but um, one of the key people in my journey in this career was my supervisor for my final research project at my um, master's program. Um, I worked under a woman named Jennifer Jacoby. She was federal policy counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights. And she was just my hype woman. And she validated all of my interests and all of my questions and, and all of my concerns too with you know wanting to make a research project really valuable to an organization like them. Um, and she really made it so that I could put myself out there and even apply for a director level role, you know, coming out of graduate school. I undervalued myself. I had imposter syndrome. I did not think I was qualified to do this work in any way, shape or form. I thought I would need a few more years at the very least. Uh, but she really pushed me to to go out and go for it. Um, and I don't think I would be in this role right now if it weren't for her. Yeah, so speaking about a little bit about your path, can you kind of share a little bit more about your past project that you were talking about in New York about strategically implementing these initiatives to kind of give patients control of their birthing experience? Yeah, totally. Oh my God, I haven't gotten to talk about this in so long. <laughs> so I was a behavioral science and health communications concentration um, at Tufts. And so what I did for my research project was go through every single thing on five different hospitals' websites. So one in each borough in New York City, all of their websites, all of their social media pages, anything that was publicly available online and did a full qualitative content analysis to see how the, well they communicate patients' rights. 
and all of the different qualities of you know options when it comes to going into labor and delivery and and how those options are communicated um and so each of those five hospitals was evaluated um and probably no surprise to a lot of people it can be really difficult to find information about um patients rights um specific to maternity care um and so some hospitals did better than others but all of them had areas for improvement um and so i provided that that analysis to the center um, with some input from um, uh, an organization called Ancient Song Doula Services uh, and then provided some suggested next steps. And you know they took it from there because my project ended. Um, but it really opened my eyes to how something as simple as just knowing your rights can be really difficult <laughs> to find when you're trying to, to find a provider and figure out what you're going to do during one of the most difficult and vulnerable moments of your life. Yeah. Um, did you find that the hospitals, like when you were looking for this information, were they like open to learning more about how they can improve communicating this information or was that kind of like a barrier for you? It was definitely a barrier. Um, I will say it was the height of the pandemic. It was that first true COVID winter. Um, and so understandably hospitals were incredibly overwhelmed especially in new york city at that time um and so we didn't get any responses in the short window of time that i had to do my research project um that being said i you know can't say for certain that they wouldn't have been interested i'm sure some would have um just you know based on my interactions with physicians and, and hospital administration since then in the massachusetts area you know, a lot of people are responsive and receptive to these conversations, but given the nature of the world that we were in, I don't think any of us were surprised that we weren't getting any responses. Yeah, it was definitely a tough time to be conducting research as well. So props to you for that. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think about, I mean, I know you were doing this project about having, seeing if patients kind of understood their rights, but what do you think is the best way for patients right now, just as like a patient-centered perspective to be able to have access to knowing what, what services are available, which ones are not covered by insurance, which ones are? Yeah, I, I wish there I knew of a single place that patients could go and I could say, all of your local information is right here at your fingertips. Um, it's a little more complicated than that. There are both fortunately and unfortunately, a lot of people doing this work, especially here in Massachusetts. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways in which we can direct people. I will say March of Dimes, we have a mobile app as do many organizations, um, but we recently expanded our app to not just um, being for NICU families, which it was originally intended for, but to being for all families, regardless of what stage of pregnancy or postpartum they're at, and regardless of what the outcome is. And within that app, we have some resources listed um, for folks to access. We also have what I think is really helpful suggested questions to bring to your doctor's appointments. Um, and that way you don't feel like you're missing anything and there's something you didn't think of ahead of time. You know, we have it readily prepared for you. And I think something as simple as that can be undervalued. Um, a lot of folks are intimidated to ask questions or don't know what questions to ask. Um, and so when we take one step out of that process from them and just hand it to them, 
I think it goes a really long way. Um, speaking of March of Dimes, so just going into that, we were hoping maybe you could give our listeners a little overview about what March of Dimes is, what your mission is, and how maybe you've noticed a shift um, in the emphasis over time, um, as well as like where that shift has come from for your mission. Sure thing. Yeah, part of part of my job right now is getting the name March of Dimes out to the younger generation. Um, I was in graduate school for this work, and I had not heard of March of Dimes until I was job hunting. Uh, that is something I'm trying to change. So March of Dimes is an 85-year-old nonprofit organization currently working to improve health outcomes for, for moms and birthing persons and babies. Uh, historically, our mission has changed a few times. So your parents or your grandparents might be familiar with us in relation to something else. So we were founded by FDR to raise funds for the polio vaccine. It used to be called the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And they coined the term March of Dimes because they asked folks to send in their dimes to the White House. It was like the OG grassroots <laughs> crowdfunding campaign. Um, and we're one of the only nonprofits who achieved their initial mission. Polio was eradicated in the US. So we got to actually move on to something else. Um, and we've done a few different things since then. We focused on birth defects, we focused exclusively on preterm birth for a while. That's what a lot of people associate us with um, still to this day. Um, but we have really shifted in, in the last few years to more broadly maternal and infant health, um, really recognizing that in order to have a healthy baby, you need to have a healthy mom. It all starts with mom. Um, and moms can get forgotten in the equation, especially after childbirth you know, that missing fourth trimester. So really trying to improve the health of moms even before they get pregnant, um, but especially once they are pregnant and after they deliver um, is really our, our focus right now. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was so interesting. I actually had no idea that it was for polio vaccine. I remember like when I was younger, I had always thought March of Diamonds was for preterm births. I think that was like when we were growing up, that was the thing we kind of focused on, but we're so happy to hear this kind of emphasis on the mom itself, because I think after you give birth, you there's this shift in focus to be like, okay, it's all about the baby now. And we have so many issues that go kind of undiagnosed, unfocused, just by forgetting about the person who gave birth, right? That's such an important thing. So we wanted to talk a little bit about kind of this recent report that March of Dimes has released on this current landscape of maternal care deserts. And one of the things we wanted to focus on is this idea of, we know that this can be partially addressed with um, child birthing sensors, but we also know that a lot of times these are only for low risk pregnancies and, you know, that almost perpetuates racial inequities. So we wanted to hear your side of it and just kind of hear it from a March of Dimes perspective. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So March of Dimes began conducting research and releasing reports on this concept of maternity care deserts in 2018. And we've released reports every other year since then. What we did this year as part of a new grant opportunity was release a supplemental series of reports that could delve much deeper into each state as well as DC and Puerto Rico. Um, and it looks at other factors that might inhibit access to care other than just the physical geographic presence of a birthing hospital or of a birth center. Um, also recognizing that that still has a huge play um, 
in that world, but there are there are a lot of other things that can impact, you know, the quality of care that a mom is receiving. Um, and so for Massachusetts and acknowledging that the data we have because of the lag of the data, it only goes up until 2020. Um, we are fortunate to not have any official maternity care deserts. So, you know, we have at least one birthing hospital or birth center operating in each county across the state. That is not the case for more than 2 million women and birthing persons across the country um, who are living in counties with absolutely none. That being said, even though we don't have any official maternity care deserts, there are some other details um, that paint a better picture of what's really going on in the state because what I hear from a lot of folks when I say, all right, we don't have any official maternity care deserts is that, well, actually we kind of do, or we kind of don't. It's this weird middle ground. So the other details that this report goes into really helps paint a better picture. So we found, for example, that nearly 5% of women and birthing persons in Massachusetts don't have a birthing hospital within 30 minutes driving distance. And that's based on normal traffic patterns from you know, a GPS service that we analyzed. Um, and there are a lot of areas of Massachusetts where normal traffic patterns just don't exist, um, like the Cape, or frankly, like the city of Boston, um, with the amount of road work being going on for, for decades and probably will be going on for decades to come. Um, and so it's probably worse than what this report even shows. Um, the report also looks at something called chronic health burden. So the percent of women and birthing persons who have at least one or more chronic health conditions diagnosed. And if you have a chronic health condition, um, such as you know, certain weight-related diagnoses, smoking, diabetes, hypertension, your chance of having a preterm birth increases by nearly 50%. And so you definitely need quicker access to care because an emergency situation is much more likely. Um, and what we're seeing is that the areas where chronic health burden is high are the more rural areas where you do have to travel further. Um, and so that's not what we wanna see either. Um, so really just thinking about these different details, um, you know, we're trying to prevent more closures from occurring. We did have a closure just this past um, summer or even into the fall um, out in Lemonster. Um, one of UMass's hospitals closed. We've had nearly one closure per year for the last 10 to 12 years on average. Um, so even though we officially don't have any deserts, we're not moving in the right direction. Um, and that is a trend we're seeing across the country. And that was a lot. So I'll stop there. <laughs> I'm just wondering, so um, if we if we do see this trend um, starting up in Massachusetts and across the country, what's something actionable that people could do um, to prevent things like this from happening? Yes, I am so glad you asked because this is my shameless plug. So <laughs> one of the you know biggest ways we can try and improve access to care is through policy solutions. Um, and we do a lot of advocacy work at both the state and the federal level. Um, I was at the state house earlier this week to advocate for um, paid leave for, for pregnancy loss. Miscarriage rates and stillbirth rates haven't changed in the last few decades, um, despite other medical advancements in other areas. Um, 
And so we're doing policy work like that all the time. And I love it when I get to bring volunteers with me who can tell their lived experience stories. Um, they are so powerful and they really get legislators attention. And so if you are interested in advocacy, I would strongly encourage you to sign up for the March of Dimes Advocacy Action Network. You can Google that, it's on our website. It's a very short fill in form. Um, and you will get emails from, from me that I will send out when there are opportunities to, to testify or come to our annual lobby day, which is called March for Change, or you know, just send in a letter of support for something. Um, you know, most constituents don't know that you can just walk into your legislator's office whenever you want. They're they're open during the work days. Um, and we want to make sure that uh, anyone who wants to share their story has the platform to do so. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing how people can kind of get involved with this organization. Is there any other ways that you think kind of young leaders can be a part of that change? And I know this is a topic a lot of people are passionate about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, through our network, that's that's the best one. But there are so many other organizations across the state and across the country doing this work, too, that are always looking for volunteers, whether that's in an advocacy space or helping out with awareness raising events. You know, we do a lot of tabling, resource fairs, that kind of a thing. And we're always looking for volunteers who want to come with us and help table those events, help us get the word out about different campaigns and initiatives we're doing. Um, you know, this maternity care deserts report was the most recent campaign. We're trying to make sure folks know that maternity care deserts is a term they should know about. Um, we have prematurity awareness month coming up. That's another campaign that, you know, we're always looking for volunteers to help spread the word on, help organize events around. We've got, um, some volunteers organizing donation drives, um, meal delivery kits to, um, NICUs in the greater Boston area. And a whole bunch of other things like that. Um, we also have some of our own events. You know, March for Babies is our annual charity walk, like a lot of other nonprofits do. Um, and it's a really fun day where we hope we get a lot of happy and excited families out and young people too to come volunteer. Um, and it's a really fun day. And it's a really good, I will say, opportunity to meet other folks with space. We have a lot of other partners come table at that event. A lot of healthcare leaders are there. It's good. I'll say it's good networking. Um, a lot of the stuff that we do is good networking. And so I want the students to know as well, like of the different opportunities to come and network because that is how the world works. And um, I want to make it as equitable as possible. Yeah, that's so incredible. Great opportunities for people. I know I know a lot of um, people personally who are up and coming leaders in this field, basically, and they're looking for opportunities to hit the ground running. So thank you for sharing. I'm sure they would really appreciate it. Um, so we are about like wrapping up this episode. And I guess we just wanted to ask if you have anything else you want to share or if you have any ideas of how you can see like the future climate of maternal health changing through like work of people like you and people like the Mother Lab. And just any thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a big question. You know, the the landscape is always changing. Um, locally, and I think across the country, it's getting a lot more attention and therefore hopefully more resources. And with that, hopefully comes more opportunities for future leaders to enter into the space. Um, there is a increasingly huge focus on mental health. Um, and I think that is a new area that emerging leaders can really dive headfirst into if they're interested in it. And 
really become leaders in the space quite quickly. Um, we're we're doing everything on the policy front to try and improve um, mental health resource access. Um, the Moms Matter Act is a bill that a lot of local leaders are pushing for, um, and we're always looking for more volunteers to join that coalition, um, as well as a few others. Um, but I would say, yeah, definitely mental health is where it's at <laughs> right now. Um, there's, a, there's a huge focus there. Um, and with that, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but maybe in the show notes, we can put the, um, the number for the National Maternal Mental Health Hotline. That was something that launched last year um, and has been very well utilized since its launch. Um, I believe its first year, it had 12,000 calls and text messages, um, but still not enough people know about it. And so I also wanna make sure folks know that that's a resource they can access for free and 24 seven. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. We definitely will add that number into the podcast description to make sure to check that out. And we just wanted to say thank you so much, Chloe, for joining us. And to anyone listening, please make sure to check out the March of Dimes and sign up for their advocacy action newsletter. Is that correct? Um, and please make sure to get involved in any way you can. Make sure to also check out the Mother Lab on all our socials. And thank you for joining. Thank you so much. This was so wonderful. Thank you.